Hi, everybody. This is God Sad for the Sad Truth. Today, I have a footballing legend. And no, I'm not talking about American football. I'm talking about real football. Uh, Americans call it, or North Americans call it, soccer. I have uh, one of those rare one-club players, Matt Letizia, who's a legend from Southampton, who's also been capped, I think, eight times for the English national team. What a pleasure and honor to meet you, sir. How are you doing? Great to talk to you, Gad. Nice to be here. Likewise, likewise. Now, uh, I did notice, of course, I always turn things back to me. It's just, uh, it's normal. Uh, I saw that, uh, and I was very proud of that. I might put that on my CV, even my academic CV, that a footballing <laughs> legend such as yourself saw my ridiculously silky skills playing at the beach, and you gave me your imprimatur. Do you want to add anything to that admiration of yours? No, I mean, it looked it all looked very natural with the ball at your feet. I was very impressed. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, okay, so let's start with your career. You're, I think, a bit younger than me. I'm 58. You're, are you 54, 54. 55? Yeah, so, 54. So I think uh, in other circumstances, we might have played together. I might have had the pleasure to, to play with you on the field. You started in the 80s, but pretty much spent your entire career at Southampton. Is this something looking back that you regret, oh, I wish I had gone continental or something, or are you perfectly happy with that decision? Uh, I'm perfectly happy with the legacy that I created at Southampton Football Club. Um, I, I had a few chances to leave um, uh, to Spurs and to Chelsea and to Liverpool, places like that. Uh, a couple of French teams were, were interested. Um, I think they saw my surname and thought I was maybe one of them. <laughs> um, but uh, no, I... I, I decided to stay for different reasons at different times. But uh, when I sit back at the end of my career and look back at it, uh, I don't have any regrets at all. Uh, you know, I've left a, a lasting legacy at Southampton Football Club. I was uh, voted the greatest player in the club's history in their 125-year history um, a few years back. So that was a very proud moment for me. And that's not something you can do, really, if you kind of uh, only spend a couple of seasons at a club here and there and keep moving around. And but money you... was never my motivating factor. Fair enough, but do you do you feel, for example, that you're you're I mean, yes, you you are a legend at that club. I think maybe second top scorer. Is that does that sound right? Yeah. Uh, uh, so yes, absolutely. You've 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 built a legacy there. But had you gone somewhere else, you might have won other trophies. Your name might have been bigger. There might have been a bigger platform for you to share your uh, incredible skills. That never crossed your mind. No, I I felt like it was my. Uh... It was my duty. Uh, I, I always felt like I owed Southampton something. I was just a little kid uh, from the Channel Islands. Um, and, you know, I just wanted to be a professional footballer. And they gave me my chance to do that. Uh, and I felt like I owed them uh, something in return for that. And uh, and I gave them my loyalty. Wow. Uh, talk us through, you know, regrettably, I so I was, you know, hoping to also play professional football, but I was living in Canada my my family decided to move from Lebanon to Canada rather than to Spain or France or England or Argentina. And so I already had all the odds stacked against me. And then I ended up having a career-ending injury at an under-18 Canadian championship uh, match. Ah. Uh, so the most that I've ever played in front of, and this would have been in indoor games, might be if I stretched it 2,000 people, 1,500. So I can't even begin to imagine the incredible feeling that one would get playing in front of you know, 40,000, 50,000 mm -hmm. the way that you did. In any of those games when you're about to step on the field, were you, I mean, of course, everybody feels nervous, but was this something that was constantly on your mind or you played enough games that it's just another game and it doesn't even cross your mind? Um, I think 
perhaps early on in my career when I was just 17 years of age and I and I made it into the first team. Uh, I think there was definitely a, a nervousness uh, about me then because I was wasn't sure, you know, whether whether or not I was good enough to play at that level. Um, I was just a, kind of still a kid, really jumping into men's football. So there was a little bit of nervousness there um, when I made my England debut at Wembley, uh, a full house at Wembley. Wow. Um, that was, uh, I came on as a substitute in a, in a game against Denmark. And I can remember then feeling pretty nervous and the butterflies in the stomach were going. But, um, you know, normally once you get out on the pitch uh, and the game starts, you don't really have time to be nervous. You've got to be concentrating the whole time and just trying to think about what's going to be best for the team, what to do next. Amazing. You know, I, I've heard recently of a few cases. I think, uh, I can't remember his last name, Boyan something, the guy who was sort of the new Messi uh, at uh, Barcelona. Barcelona, Bojan Kurtic. Exactly. Who suffered from debilitating uh, anxiety and which, of course, you know, sort of hindered his career. He was going to go, I think, to the Euro 2008 or I can't remember which one. And then he had this whole panic attack. There are other players, I think, uh, Neves, uh, Jesus Neves of uh, who who went to Manchester That's City, it. right? Yeah. Who also at one point never wanted to leave home. Didn't want. To, I think it's Sevilla, Sevilla. Yeah, uh, yeah. But then he kind of broke through. So you know, it, it's kind of interesting. Uh, I was speaking to a physician friend of mine who deals with high performing ac- uh, athletes, and I asked him. Uh, I think it might have been even on the show on air. I said to him. Uh, can I guess what is the probably the number one reason that you know high profile athletes come and see you? And he goes, "Yeah, okay, go ahead, shoot." I said, "Anxiety related issues." He said, "Exactly." And now the reason why I say this, and kind of linking it back to your earlier question about did you feel nervous, is that you know you think of uh, you know the professional soccer player. I mean, that's the epitome of the the male archetype. It's 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 the top of the top. It's the guys who are going. It's the glad. It's the modern day gladiators. Yet they're human and they suffer. There's there's no shame to feeling, you know, having anxiety, right? Mm. No, absolutely not. But I think uh, I think back when I started playing football, I think that there was um, exactly. a stigmatism around it, and you didn't, as a footballer, you you wouldn't be encouraged to actually admit that that was happening because that that showed a bit of weakness, right? Um, uh, and that was uh, certainly not encouraged encouraged back in the uh, back in the eighties. Do you, do you feel that, of course, there's a lot of work that tries to kind of destigmatize, whether it be your sexual orientation or your mental health issues, you know, Gary Speed committed suicide, the, the Wales manager. Do you do you feel that, uh, you know, soccer has been demachoized or do you think that we're pretty much the same place we were in the 1980s or 90s? Uh, no, we're definitely not in the same place. Um, definitely not. I, I think um, I, if 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 I'm honest, I think we've probably maybe the pendulum has swung perhaps a little bit too far the other way. Right. Uh, I think I think there's a happy medium to be had. Um, you know, back in my day, that was kind of seen as a weakness and all that kind of stuff. But it, but that wasn't a help to the players who genuinely suffered from that. Um, but then I think if you then go too far the other way, you normalise it, and every little bit of uh, setback that a player gets in his life, uh, he starts thinking that, you know, oh, this is the end of the world and now I'm suffering from anxiety because I've had a bit of a setback and I don't know how to cope with it. Um, uh, and it's it's something that's um, intrigued me down the years has, has been how the difference in in mentality between between players. Um, and, and I think one of the biggest things I've seen, the change in, in certainly in English soccer, uh, has been uh, the fragility 
uh, I think of the of the players in terms of um, you know their their robustness to cope with injuries, um, and I think also their penchant for uh, screaming when they have a slight touch on a football pitch and falling over <laughs> way too easily. Well, you know, usually when whenever I weigh in on on soccer and, and social media, uh, people who don't appreciate soccer, the the number one thing. I mean, I didn't I didn't do an official count, but sort of anecdotally, the number one thing that I see people complaining about is the over exaggerated. You know, and, and that actually takes away from the fact that that soccer is a very physical and very violent yeah. sport. But if you're seeing everybody dropping like little princesses, then you think that all of these guys are actually not tough and they're they're fragile yeah no that's exactly right so i think as as with most things in life uh and i'm sure you're aware uh there's a, a happy medium to be found somewhere between those two extremes you know i in my forgive the shameless plug but in my next book which is on you know how to live a happy life and be smiling and be content and you know, so on uh i have an entire chapter on what you just said the uh, you know everything in moderation which the ancient greeks had already ta- told us about aristotle talked about Say when you have a soldier, you don't want a soldier to be cowardly and meek, but you also don't want a, a soldier to be, you know, unnecessarily reckless in his bravery. And so, in, in that chapter in my forthcoming book, I actually argue that, as you exactly said, almost everything you can think of, any phenomenon, follows that inverted U: too little, not good; too much, not good. Live somewhere in the sweet spot. Absolutely. Uh, all right, so let's talk about some of the players that you played with or against in your time or, or who you may have not played against but who were from that era. Give me the top three people that you played against or with. Oh, wow. Um, I would probably say uh, played against would be Thierry Henry, uh, would be one, oh. of the, one of the best players I played against. Uh, I thought he was, uh, he was pretty amazing. Uh, Paul Gascoigne. Uh, Gaza. Um, he was probably the the most talented Englishman of my generation. Uh, so he was he was pretty special. Um, and I also got the chance in a in a preseason friendly back in uh, 1993, I think it was. We played against Juventus, uh, and I managed to play one game against Roberto Baggio, who are wow. a wonderful footballer. Uh, and so he would be he would be right up there as you know one of the best players I played against. Is there is there is there a comment? I mean, of course. As someone who knows soccer, I can see why you you said that about each. But is there something that is common across all three? Is it that they both had better vision than everybody else? Anybody else? Is it that their touch was better? You know, what is it? Um, I think with Gaza and um, Baggio, I think there were quite uh, similar attributes in terms of um, their touch on the ball. Their first touch was amazing. They had a, a spatial awareness, which was second to none. Um, I think with with Henri, I think it was slightly different. Um, I think the way that he moved about the pitch, uh, you know, the speed that he possessed, but but with that speed came uh, not just a, a very good touch, uh, but also the the composure to slow down when he needed to. Uh, and I think that's the one thing that a lot of very quick players don't do very well is that they're always going at 100 miles an hour. They don't appreciate when to slow down. Uh, but I think Thierry Henry had that in him, uh, and that's a, a pretty unique combination. Uh, I mean, of contemporary players that fit what you just described about the first two players, I might argue might be even better than them, and you'll, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, or at least what your opinion is. Uh, Kevin De Bruyne is someone who, 
you know, I'm I'm old enough to have seen all of the great players, including when I was a very young child, Pele, right? So I've seen Pele and Maradona and Cruyff. Uh, okay. Cruyff was my childhood hero. Yeah. Uh, there is something about the footballing IQ of Kevin De Bruyne. I mean, he's, I mean, yes, he's skillful, but he's not the silkiest of guys, but he puts, I mean, I literally will turn on Manchester City just to watch him, even though he's not doing the overly, you know, beautiful stuff that other players you would associate with. He just finds those lanes that are simply incredible. Do, do, do you share in my admiration, I suppose? Uh, very much so. Um, he's been a player that I've really enjoyed watching these last few years uh, to see his development because, uh, you know, as a youngster at Chelsea, it was a bit of a struggle for him. Uh, you know, he had to go off and ply his trade elsewhere, came back to to Manchester City and a lot of eyebrows were raised when it was 50 odd million pounds they paid for him back then because yeah. everyone in this country just remembered the Kevin De Bruyne at, at Chelsea. Yeah. Um, but he'd obviously progressed as a player and um, I think the positions he takes up in that team, the team is very much... Um, suited to his style of play. He takes up fantastic positions and he kind of, he plays passes that other people don't even see. That's yeah. the best thing yeah. about Kevin De Bruyne. He, his, his, again, his spatial awareness is um, his weight of pass is one of the best. Uh, I think I, I've, I've probably ever seen. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, well, you know, you mentioned just a second ago that, you know, uh, the, the style of Manchester city suits him. And it reminds me of a, a personal story So at, 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 w- that speaks to that point, that when you have a coach who doesn't appreciate your unique talents, you can go from being a hero to a zero very, very quickly. Nothing has changed about you is that you don't fit the system. So, and I actually very briefly talk about this in uh, the first chapter of the, the Parasitic Mind, my last book, where I'm talking about the importance of freedom in my life. And not just freedom in terms of freedom of speech and academic freedom. And I use the example from football that when I was a player, my best quality, I mean, I was, a, if I may say, a very skillful player. I had, I had a very nice touch, which often comes from playing in the streets. I grew up in Lebanon. It's You always see players who come from that tradition who really know how to handle the ball yeah but it came from being free to roam around looking for, i was a playmaker whenever i would have a coach who who would say to me okay you're playing today on left side of midfield and you my brain would it's as if you decapitated me not because i was a prima donna and no you it's because the the fact that you have geographically restricted me yes. i have to do this then I shouldn't be playing because my best attribute has been removed, and I I can see that you understand what I'm what I'm saying. A hundred percent. I guess that happens to all sorts of players at all sorts of levels. Yeah, I mean, absolutely, it does. Uh, I have a, a pretty good example from from my career. You know, I, I was very much the same, where you kind of get pigeonholed into a position and told to you know stay there and don't move out of it, uh, and that did you know that did take away from my game a heck of a lot. And the first manager really um, that came in uh, and literally said to me, you can go anywhere you want. I'm going to build the team and I'm going to leave you to do whatever you want within that team. Wow. Uh, and I had that manager for for 18 months and uh, it was Alan Ball, former World Cup winner. Wow. Uh, and his his whole philosophy was that he he built this team in the, in the shape uh, and he told all the other players in the team, the first thing you need to do when you get the ball is, can I pass to Matt Letizia? <laughs> it was it was literally that simple. Um, and that and Alan Ball was in charge at Southampton for 66 games, uh, and I missed one through injury and one through suspension. 
Uh, and in those 64 games, uh, I scored 45 goals. And I was, I was going to say that the, the, the stats support what you're saying. And clearly they oh, did. Okay. Uh, 100%. So I scored. Uh, so he took over in the in the January of, our, uh, of so halfway through uh, a season he took over. So I had a very good finish to that season. I think I scored something like 17 goals in 20 games or something, 22 games. Uh, and then um, the following season, I, I scored, um, uh, I think it was, 30 or was 15 40 yeah 15 in the first season in his in his half a season and then I scored 30 goals uh, the following season and then he left he got poached by Manchester City uh he went off to to be manager of Manchester City we had a new manager come in who I knew and he was a great guy uh, but who changed the dynamic of the team uh, and the following season guess how many goals I scored <laughs> many fewer <laughs> about 11 or 12 I think it was it wasn't many it wasn't wow. many yeah. Un- unbelievable now i know that you you used to be the penalty taker you, you know you mm. scored many goals as a as a penalty taker and in uh in the last chapter of the parasitic mind where i'm imploring people to get engaged you know in the battle of ideas i use the analogy of you know be the penalty taker because what i mean by that is assume responsibility right o- oftentimes yeah. The guy who's a penalty taker is not, I mean, not that you weren't the most skillful player on the team you were, but oftentimes it may not be the most skillful player. It might be the person, forgive the term, who has the greatest testicular fortitude, right? Uh, is this what you found in your career? Not necessarily in your team because you were the penalty taker. Did you did you find that typically the person who is chosen to be the penalty taker is the person who's coolest, most confident and so on? Or is it more, more often than not also the best player? No, not not necessarily the best player at all. Um, in fact, I, I'd say that was in a minority um, right. in terms of penalty takers. Uh, and I think you're right. I think the biggest quality um, that you need to be a good penalty taker is actually what's going on between your ears. Exactly. Uh, um, that that for me, I mean, although I, I had good technique as well with that, which meant I could side foot the ball pretty powerfully into the corners, uh, that helped. Um, but for me, looking back, uh, I think the the positive mental attitude uh, towards taking penalties and actually looking forward to being in that situation was way more important. Um, and that's what I saw in in other really good penalty takers. They they didn't they, you know when the penalty was taken they were like brilliant this is a chance to score a goal. You know no, no, there wasn't one thought that entered your head which went oh my what if I miss in front of all these people <laughs> right and that's the difference. Right. So did you, earlier we were talking about the difference in terms of, for example, the the stigma associated to mental health. So let me bring it back to psychology. In your days, were there a lot of sports psychologists that were assigned to teams? We have them a lot more now. So and the reason mm-hmm. I thought of it is because, you know, you might argue when someone misses three penalty shots, their confidence goes down. Now we need to bring in the sports psychologists to lift them up. Did you have a lot of that or was it... Uh, you know, a very different era where you didn't do you didn't do things at that minutia level. Yeah, it wasn't. It, it was a very different era. Although towards the end of my career, it just started to uh, come into come into play. Probably in the late nineties. You know, when I was coming towards the end of my career, I retired in two thousand two. Um, so I do remember a, a sports psychologist coming in. Um, I think it was, might have been Glenn Hoddle, might have been the first manager at, at Southampton in nineteen ninety nine. Uh, who brought in a, a sports psychologist to come and talk to the players and uh, and see what they think? But at that point, it wasn't. Uh, it was very much on a voluntary basis, right? 
was it was it a rolling of the eyes from the players or did they take it seriously or why are we getting this touchy-feely guy coming to annoy us <laughs> uh, i think it was a mixture of both uh, i think there were players that that did appreciate it and perhaps did need it um but i in my experience back then uh, I, i think those players would have been in a minority i think the players that i played with um back in those days that there was a very very strong mentality about a lot of the players right you know they were they were pretty strong and pretty committed and and did kind of go you know i'm i'm strong mentally i don't i don't need that right. um and i was probably one of those in that category <laughs> uh so i want to just talk about if you're still playing soccer now then i want to go yeah. to the some of the current soccer players and of course messi and then we could go on to stuff outside of soccer um uh, every summer uh i uh, Just bear with me as I set up the question. Every okay. summer, my family and I head off to Southern California. We used to live in Southern California. I was a professor at University of California, Irvine, for a while. I have a lot of family in Southern California. And so we hang out in Newport Beach, which is about an hour south of uh, LA. And uh, in one of the areas that we hang out, uh, I recurringly kept running into Jurgen Klinsmann. Who, oh, okay. uh, who of course was a World Cup winner and Tottenham player and uh, you know a famous player from Germany. Uh, just said hello to him a few times. Got to know one of his friends who told me that you know he saw me playing soccer. He said, "Oh, you should play on Jurgen Klinsmann's over fifty-five team. They play in San." And I and my my children looked at me and said. You're James Bond, Dad. In what world <laughs> do you get approached by people to play soccer with them who are World Cup winners? And so I started <laughs> fantasizing that if we ever move back to uh, to Southern California, what a thrill it would be uh, <laughs> at, at a much later stage in my life to actually be passing balls to Jurgen Kisman. Which brings <laughs> me to your que to question I wanted to ask you, which is, do you still play regularly? Are 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 you still in enough shape to to do it? Um, I, I hadn't been in enough shape to do it the last few months. Uh, so, um, I, yeah, I've decided come January the 1st that I would uh, get myself back into shape because I do like playing football still. And I and I do play, uh, we play, we have an ex-Southampton players team, which play wow. a few charity games through the summer. Um, so we played from April through to September, I'd suppose. Uh, and we'd probably play maybe uh, seven or eight games through the course of that. Uh, and I enjoy playing in those. So yeah, I wanted to to get back into a little bit of shape to be able to actually try and try and be able to move around the pitch a little bit. So uh, yeah, on I think on New Year's Day I was I was almost the heaviest weight I'd ever been in my life. Uh, I'd had a very good Christmas, obviously, <laughs> and uh, and so I decided on New Year's Day that uh, now that's that's enough. Now uh, I need to get back into shape. So uh, in the intervening sixteen days, uh, I think so far I've lost. 18 and a half pounds wow congratulations so almost a pound a, a day yeah <laughs> yeah okay uh, so, so what's your secret uh well the first the first week uh so on january the first uh so i'm uh, i have a very poor diet uh, i'm the first to admit i i eat too much rubbish and i drink way too much coke oh. so uh, i'm drinking i was drinking like four cans of cola a day um, and not even which, diet coke regular coke regular coke uh, yes. and i also uh ate chocolate quite a bit um so on january the first i decided for the month of january i wasn't going to drink coke and i wasn't going to eat chocolate uh, and in the first week i think it was uh i lost eight pounds wow um, and then 
the second week was uh, I've been on a juicing diet for seven days with the uh, with the juice master, uh, Jason Vale. So all I've done for the last seven days, it finished last night, is um, is just have four juices every day uh, for seven days, and and I had my first bit of proper food uh, this morning for for seven days. Well, how do you feel overall? Oh, I feel great. You know, it feels uh, a whole lot easier to get my clothes on for a start. Um, and I, obviously, I've started exercising again as well. So I've started going out for little runs. Um, so I will build that up gradually. It's hard. You know, I've run a few half marathons in my time over the last 10 years. Um, but obviously, if you don't use it, you lose it. And uh, and I hadn't really exercised uh, for, you know, quite some time. So uh, i got to build myself up gradually and uh, and who knows, I might run another half marathon or something. Oh, that's that's very inspiring. I mean, I, I also lost a huge amount of weight, a lot more than you did, because uh, I, I had ballooned to. I mean, I, w- I wasn't quite Mad- Maradona-esque. If you see him when he's <laughs> become a, I mean, five foot four, I don't know what he was, 300 pounds. But I mean, I tell you, I was, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit taller than Maradona. But uh, I was the weight of a middle linebacker in football. So someone who is six, seven inches taller than me should not yeah. be weighing the same. And so I ended up losing, you know, well over 80 pounds in about 18 months. Oh, well and, done. Yeah, thank you so much. And uh, and it, and of course, it, it's, it's, it revolutionized everything you could do. Although I tried to play soccer with my kids and I realized that uh, no amount of weight loss is going to <laughs> recoup the fact that I don't have nearly the same acceleration as I did back then. It's, it's, it's such a terribly, uh, if nothing else, a humbling experience to realize that, okay, your touch is still there. You know how to, yes. right. Yes. But before I can just sort of move my hips and I just get <laughs> by two players. And now it's, I'm about 500 times slower. And I realized I actually can't do, 90% of the things that I used to do. It, have you found that that's true for you or? Yeah, no, very much so. Uh, it is, it's been the biggest learning curve over the last few years was to, um, I, I think the motto that I have now when I set foot on a football pitch is play within your limits. So know, <laughs> know where your limits lie because I have uh, over the last 10 or 15 years since I retired, I've pulled far too many muscles yes. trying to do things that I thought I could still do and I couldn't do it. Yeah. Uh, and so re- it's a retraining of your brain to understand what your limits are and what you can do on a football pitch. So, uh, so yeah, I try and keep it simple now and, uh, and I don't try and get too flashy and try and I certainly don't try and run past people, uh, but I can still control the ball. I still pass it nicely uh, and I can still take a penalty and a free kick. <laughs> Beautiful. Okay. Let's talk about current soccer players, the world cup that just finished, and then we'll go into uh, some ideological issues that I know that you've weighed in on. Uh so the World Cup finished more just yesterday was a month ago. Now, you know, as any soccer fan is, you know, I'm I'm a very feverish guy. If I love a team, I love a team, even though I have nothing to do with them, right? I mean, I used to love Zinedine Zidane. I'm not French. I used to love Johan Cruyff when I was in Lebanon and he was my childhood idol. I'm, I'm not Dutch, but none have gripped me remotely as closely as Lionel Messi did. And I I did a sad truth clip uh, just shortly after they won the World Cup where I was really trying to analyze psychologically and philosophically why Lionel Messi, Messi, you know, captures people's hearts the way they do. Not only, in my view, is he by far not even close the greatest soccer player ever, 
but his personhood, I mean, I don't know him personally, but the way he carries himself with, I mean, you know, it almost seems unnatural that you would be this humble because you just would have a chip on your shoulder, right? Because, <laughs> because you're that good, right? So, so I'm, I'm, I find it wondrous that he could be so lovely, such a family guy. So take it away anywhere you want. Do you agree that he's the greatest soccer player? And, and if you don't, that's okay. And tell me why. Just give me your thoughts on Lionel Messi. Sure. I mean, it, I've always found it very difficult to try to pin a label on somebody of being the best footballer of, of all time. You know, it's um, it's such a, a nuanced debate um, to compare people from different generations, I think is unfair because of the conditions that they play in. You know, footballers that play nowadays, they get to play on beautiful carpets. Um, and yet you look back to the likes of George Best and Pele and yeah. Maradona uh, and you see some of the pitches that those guys had to play on. Uh, and we're still amazing at dribbling. You know, I think you then tend to underestimate uh, that factor when you take it take that into account. Plus the fact that back in those days, the defenders were literally allowed to uh, cause grievous bodily harm <laughs> and not even get a yellow card. It, you know, it would it was just ridiculous how hard it was for a player to get a yellow card back then. So they had to deal with all that, and we're still amazing. So. And that's why I find it hard to to try to compare between generations. So I try not to do that. Um, I think of this generation, um, certainly of the last 20 years, I, I would say Lionel Messi is the best that I've seen. Um, and I, and I, I say that with uh, knowing that a lot of people will go, oh, Cristiano Ronaldo. Yeah. No. Um, in terms of uh, my personal opinion and what I like to watch on a football field, um, I like to watch somebody who has got God-given natural ability. Yeah. And uh, Lionel Messi certainly has that. Uh, Cristiano does have uh, a quite a bit of that. And, and I have the utmost respect for what Cristiano Ronaldo um, has got out of his body. I mean, he has looked after himself yeah. probably better than any footballer I've ever known. Uh, he's been incredible in his longevity. Um, and so he's rightly spoken about in in the same sentences. But for me, it'll always be messy. Yeah. Well, you know, when when they were playing in the World Cup, uh, I was so, and I think I'm only one of several billion people who were very personally vested in in him winning. But I, you know, I'll, I I can only speak for myself because you know I'm I'm very much of a of a purist in, in everything that I do in terms of the way I view life, the, the pursuit of truth and freedom and the way, uh, you know, and so on. And I felt that it was cosmically unjust for a player who was this good to not win the world cup, because I thought it was like an affront to, to beauty when all these imbeciles would say, well, he could never be the, 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 the greatest player of all time because he never won a world cup. Which, of course, I mean, as someone who studies psychology of decision-making, it is so irrational, right? Because if Higuain <laughs> had scored the, the sitter that my dead aunt would have scored in 2014, <laughs> then suddenly, magically, he would have become the greatest soccer player ever. If Martinez hadn't saved that last-second save and then Argentina would have lost, then he would no longer be the greatest soccer player ever. But now that he won the World Cup, all of those haters could be put to rest. And it was unbelievably important to me, which shows you the power of sports and <laughs> soccer. It, you know, I mean, literally, I felt like I was going to have a heart attack when they were playing. I mean, I, I literally thought, you know, I'm just going to stop watching. I can't take it. 
right? <laughs> and so, do you do you do you get my my appeal to cosmic justice for him winning it? Uh, I, I do get that appeal, and it's it's one of the the things that frustrates me as well when when people have debates uh, about football and footballers when they go, well, who's who's the better player? Uh, and so whenever they have this debate about, they go, well, who's the better player? And and they bring up, oh, well, this player won this many trophies and this right. player only won this many trophies. Well, you go, well, actually, that's a very different debate because to win a trophy, you're part of a team. We're talking about individual ability. So what they won actually doesn't come into that equation whatsoever. Um, it's about your ability as a footballer, what you could do, uh, what you couldn't do. Um, and it, it doesn't matter if you won because you were only a small part yeah. of that win because you're one of 11. And, you know, without those other guys, you don't win nothing. You're, you're not winning a World Cup playing one against 11. <laughs> so let's take that out of the equation. When you talk about, you know, the, the greatest of all time, I, I would say, I would still say, even if Argentina had lost the World Cup final, for me, in my head, uh, Messi would still be the greatest of his generation. Right. Oh, you, so you're going to stick with this his generation qualifier. Okay, I got you. I got well, you. I, I, I can only say that because I didn't see Pele play. So I can't make a judgment on how good Pele was. I can only go by what my father would say about him, <laughs> you know, and uh, and, and people who were, were old enough to, to have witnessed him. And of course, you never got to see as much on the TV back yeah. in those days as well. So perhaps, you know, we didn't really get to see just how good Pele was yeah. um, uh, because there's a lot of stuff that he did that, that we wouldn't have seen. Or, Fair enough. And, or, and, yeah, go ahead. Or there's a or there's a lot that we saw of him where he was absolutely rubbish and he wasn't as good as what we thought he was. <laughs> so you know, there's there's two sides to every story. Right. Fair enough. Uh, to to your earlier point about uh, you know we can't judge a player by how many trophies he won. I mean, uh, I, I don't know how many domestic trophies George Best won, but he certainly didn't play on a national team that went anywhere. And so by that logic, then we should take him out. And every single guy who played on, uh, you know, uh, West Germany or Germany, who was a sub, who never got into the pitch, but who's a World Cup player, by definition, is certainly way better than Johan Cruyff, who never won the World Cup. Well, there you go. See, it's, ridic <laughs> it's a ridiculous argument. OK, let's uh, last question on soccer and then we move on to other stuff. Uh, your beloved Southampton. What is going on, Matt? <laughs> well, they've had a good week. I mean, yes, we've had a we've had a, a a pretty bad run from Christmas, but the last week, uh, I've actually started feeling a little bit optimistic. We've had three wins in a week. Two of them were in cup competitions, yeah. uh, admittedly, um, but one of them was against Manchester City. You know, we yes. do had a pretty strong team out, uh, and yet we still managed to beat them. So we're in the semi final of the uh, Carabao Cup, um, which is nice. But we are sat bottom of the Premier League, which is a concern. Um, you know, I certainly don't wish to see my team relegated for the second time uh, since uh, since I've been retired. So hopefully we can keep up this good form and drag ourselves out of trouble. Do, do you, you know, when I, whenever I, uh, my, my son, who's now 11, is now really getting into soccer. And so I had explained to him a year or two ago the concept of relegation, which in in, in North American sports doesn't yeah. exist, right? The, the the division is, I mean, the 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 league is the league, which I think there's something so beautiful and 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 tragic and dramatic about relegation. I mean, what 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 is heartbreaking is that when a team is relegated, it could literally literally be a lifetime before that team ever makes it back. Right. I mean, I don't yep. 
Southampton, you said is would if they if they were to be relegated would be the second time. How, how long were they relegated for the the last time they were relegated? Um, so we got relegated in two thousand and five, uh, and we came back into the Premier League in two thousand and twelve. So seven years, and I think you were relegated to the and third we actually, division. Yeah, yeah, we got relegated twice. So we went down another division, and then had to had to bounce back two divisions, which we did wow. in two consecutive seasons, which was pretty special. Did you ever play in lower division stuff? No. No team got relegated with me in it. <laughs> ah, there's the penalty taker. There's the swagger. All right, let's switch it. I mean, I could I could obviously talk soccer for another 17 hours, but let's for for our viewers who are saying, I don't want to hear about only soccer. Another reason you became famous because you you are doing something unthinkable, which is you're actually presuming that individual people can have individual free thoughts. That's very, very dangerous, Mr. Leticia. How dare you? It is very dangerous in this country. I mean, I didn't realize it was dangerous until March 2020 uh, when it became very dangerous to uh, go against anything that your prime minister or your chief uh, medical officer was saying on the television, um, even though um, a lot of the stuff that was happening didn't make any sense whatsoever. And they were still trying to make people do it. And so I was quite happy to to speak up and uh, try to put the other side of the coin across um, and just tell, let people know that, you know, perhaps sometimes your government doesn't always tell you the truth. And sometimes your government don't really care about your safety. They use that as a means to nick your freedoms and nick your tax money. And yes. it's as simple as that. You're talking, of course, about, in case people who haven't followed you, you're talking about you uh, questioning or criticizing some of the COVID policies, mm -hmm. uh, which uh, coincidentally, just yesterday, I posted my latest uh, clip on my, uh, on my show, on my channel, where I was uh, critiquing, regrettably, I'm going to say a former friend of mine, I don't know if you're familiar with him or not, Sam Harris. Sam Harris, yeah. yeah. And where did you, did, are I've you familiar the with the clip, right? I've seen so, the clip, yeah. so the story is, if my grandmother had balls, we would have called her my grandfather. If the reality of COVID were different and had it been that regrettably it turned out to not kill enough people, but had more children died, and if the vaccine had been more effective, then I would have been proven right. So, so if things were different, they would have been different. And if I yes. wasn't wrong, I would have been right. That's what exactly right. Matt, and my, and it, it was a saying, funny enough, it took me back to my childhood because my 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 dad always used to say, you know, and we used to say, well, what happens if this happens? And, and he'd go, well, if my auntie had balls, she'd be my uncle. So it's <laughs> irrelevant, uh, and which is exactly what that conversation was, completely irrelevant. I'm not quite, a, tr quite sure what Sam Harris was trying to say there. It was the most um, roundabout way of trying to justify his position uh, and he failed miserably at it well i think it's it comes from uh at the fact that you know one of the most difficult things to achieve in nature is to change an individual's 
anchored positions, right? Yeah. It takes a tremendous amount of intellectual humility. We call it epistemic humility. I mean, a scientist should be epistemologically humble because science is about autocorrection. We, you know, we used to think that the earth revolved around the sun and then the Copernican revolution happened. And now we don't believe that anymore. So you always have to be humble. Science is always provisional by definition. Uh, it is true until it is perhaps falsified at some later date. So how do you explain, having now gone through some of those trials and tribulations of speaking your mind, how do you explain the, the COVID you know, dogma that's so prevalent? Um, uh, I explain it by, um, uh, I noticed very early on um, that what I was seeing on the television was propaganda. Uh, and was pure brainwashing techniques, repetition, 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 pure brainwashing of COVID, people dying of COVID. Um, but I was kind of on top of the on top of the data. Um, you know, I I, um, I got in touch with like minded people who were data analysts who were actually seeing what was going on, uh, who were checking the government um, websites for their. Uh, terms and conditions uh, and to see you know exactly what was considered a covid death um and when you look back now you know outside of the the fog of propaganda uh, and think that we allowed the government to count anybody who died within 28 days of, of a covid positive test even if covid had nothing to do with it they were still counted as one of the deaths that we were being shown at five o'clock every evening on the television. Uh, and so I knew that early on. Um, I also uh, heard about Carrie Mullis early on with the PCR test. Um, I, I knew about that pretty early on in all of this. Uh, and all these things started adding up to me and I'm joining the dots. And then I'm looking at the World Economic Forum website. I'm looking at the Bill and Melinda Gates um, foundation website to see where their money's going to and all the dots just joined up and and i'm sorry i wasn't ready to go along with it all and then you had the whole you know the george floyd thing where you know everyone was uh, a racist all of a sudden uh, and you know you had to you had to support black lives matter well that was probably one of the things that cost me my job on television is that i refused um to wear that black lives matter badge after the yes. after the first time when it was thrown on us right at the last minute so i wore it once and then went to the producer and said i'm not comfortable with this i, I know what this organization is i know what they stand for i have no i have no intention of aligning myself with that organization whatsoever uh, and i was the first person at sky sports who refused to wear that badge and that probably was one of the reasons why i, I got sacked um just a few months later now had you so okay, you 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 weighed in on the COVID policies, and that was controversial. You were a conspiracist. Uh, you then weighed in on the BLM stuff. So clearly, you're exhibiting the fact that you know you're not going to not speak your mind in order to you know adhere to some careerist machination. Was that something that was an inherent part of your personhood that had manifested itself earlier, but we just didn't hear of it, or is this you? I finding out that you're a honey badger. Now, I don't think it's you finding out later that you're a honey badger because you were the penalty taker, which suggests that <laughs> you did have that kind of testicular fortitude. But had you always been sort of irreverent to orthodoxy and outspoken, or is this something that you've kind of discovered I, now? No, I'd always had a, um, I think I probably 
almost had a dislike of authority yeah. uh, from quite an early age. I can remember, <laughs> I can remember one story actually. Um, I've, I played in my school football team, so I would only have been about I don't know maybe twelve or thirteen or something, and um, uh, and I can. I can remember the the referee who'd refereed the game. It's an away game for my school. So we'd refereed, we're being refereed by the opposition's PE teacher. So, you know, completely neutral, obviously. Yeah. Uh, and so during the game, there were some very dubious decisions that were going on. And my mind's going, hang on a minute, that wasn't, you know, that wasn't fair. That's not fair. And I think at the end of the game, uh, I I overheard, I overheard the teacher who'd refereed the game go to my teacher. And and warn him about my conduct on the football pitch because I was giving it a bit of that, yeah. and uh, so I overheard it, and uh, and I just turned to my mate who had also heard this conversation. I just turned to my mate and I went, "That guy's talking out of his ass," <laughs> and I must have and I must have said it a little bit too loud, right? Because the teacher heard it, and uh, and all of a sudden I had the the teacher uh, on me and. Uh, escorting me straight back from this football match, escorting me back to my house to my mother to inform her of what I just said to this uh, to this yeah. teacher. So uh, I'd always had, um, you know, a, an ability to question authority, shall we say, at quite an early age, uh, and I also had a, a you know a pretty strong belief in what I feel is right and what I feel is just. Yeah. Um, uh, and I think that's something really that that's probably the main driver behind it all. Is because I could see that this wasn't just. This wasn't. This wasn't fair on people, especially, especially the poorer people who right. suffered the most throughout all of this. Um, and that's why I, I didn't. I didn't care for my job. Um, I had to say what I needed to say uh, because I think there were people in a less fortunate position than me who didn't have the voice that I had, um, and I felt a moral obligation to to speak out on their behalf. So then how do you, I mean, again, going back to earlier when I was talking about, you know, that many footballers suffer from anxiety related disorders, and you wouldn't think that they would because they're this kind of larger than life masculine archetypes and so on. Mm -hmm. How do you then explain the fact that the, the fact that you can play at Wembley, I don't mean you, I'm saying generic player, the fact that they can have the courage to play at Wembley doesn't translate to the fact that they have to, to, to them having the courage to say, no, I'm not kneeling before every game. That's a mm. castrated, uh, you know, uh, symbol. And I know for a fact that some of them did not support that, yet they didn't do what Matt Letizia did and say, I'm not doing it. Everybody mm. can... Now, of course, I I I talk about this in, in, in the context of the academic ecosystem, where I say that academia actually selects academics if they are spineless and without testicles. That's how you select academics. And therefore, I'm really a sore thumb in academia because <laughs> you know, I don't fit any of that mold. But why is it that this male archetype of a professional soccer player, you don't have more people who are irreverent and speaking out and saying, I'm, I've had enough of this bullshit, or as you guys say in Britain, this shite. <laughs> so I think it goes back to the earlier point that I made about the difference in the in the uh, mentality of players from the 1980s to the mentality of players today. I think they're a lot more fragile mentally today. And I think if they would have tried this shit back in 1985, I think they would have got a very different reaction. You, you think so, they right? Would, they would never have got away with that. No, not a chance. Not a chance. Wow. So ha has, has the fact that 
I mean, yes, you've been We've in bred the a generation of snowflakes, Gad, is what has happened, yeah, unfortunately. Yeah. And even professional soccer players are becoming snowflakes. My goodness, that's not good for the uh, reproduction of the species. Uh, we need guys to have testosterone. Uh, do, do, has, 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 the fact that you've now entered this you know, new realm where you know, you're really weighing in on these important issues and you know, you're controversial, quote controversial, has this opened your eyes to new opportunities for you? Oh, you know, I'd I'd like to take my shot and go into politics. I'd like to what? Or no, you're just going to speak your mind, do your thing, but it hasn't opened any new doors for you. Um, I, I think there's probably um, some opportunities there if I wish to take them. Um, I've but you had don't conversations with political oh, okay. parties, um, but uh, that hasn't really. It's not really a route that I, I ever saw myself going down, um, but I never say never. Uh, and if things change, then I'm willing to change. Um, uh, but I will be speaking. There's a, a big rally being organized in London uh, this Saturday uh, for the vaccine injured. So um, there's and then we're going to do it right outside the BBC offices so, so they can't not see us. Uh, so we're hoping to get a, a huge turnout for that. And, and I will be making a speech at that rally, which will be the first time that I would have ever done something like that. Wow. What what otherwise keeps you... So Matt wakes up at whatever time. Walk us through a typical day. Uh, well, as you can probably see, um, I've got one of my golf jumpers on at the moment, and that's something... <laughs> oh, you're a big golf player, right? very dear to my heart. Uh, I love playing golf, so I try and play that um, at, at least three times a week if I can. Uh, so that is uh, a big part of my life. Uh, I enjoy playing golf. Uh, I'm, I'm quite competitive and I want to keep getting better even at my age. Uh, I still think I can get better at it. Um, so that's uh, that's a big part. Um, I do some after dinner speaking where I, I just speak about my football career, uh, all the funny stuff that happened during my football career. So I, so I do that. Um, I'm doing some work with GB News, um, one of the, the news channels over here. It's a fairly new news channel. So yes, I've been on it. They, yes, so so I've been doing some regular slots with them, uh, which has been good. Uh, it's been nice to to you know be able to still have a voice on television uh, and be able to say the things that you you believe in uh, without being censored, which is what's been happening in a lot of our mainstream media over here. But you're no longer getting any uh, offers to be a football pundit uh... um so i've i for the last couple of years i've been working for a company called mola um who were uh, an indonesian um television channel and they were covering the bundesliga and the dutch league for the last couple of years so i had been working for them pretty regularly uh but they stopped their coverage uh, of those leagues this season um in fact they've just got a couple of dutch games coming up in the next few weeks which i'm which i'm doing so they'll be the first couple of matches that i've done for a little while so i'm uh heavily into my research this week into uh, into Feyenoord and Ajax. So uh, so that should be a great game. So I've yeah, I've had a um, when the opportunity arises then uh, they they do uh, they do use me on that channel. So that's been quite nice as well. Um yeah, and and that's kind of, you know, I have uh, I have family here um uh, as well. I've got my my wife and my uh, 13 year old daughter here uh you know we have a, a mother-in-law living with us uh so do you live in the uh, southampton area the south or where, where are you yes i'm still on the south coast yeah and oh. uh and, and obviously 
every every Monday night, which uh, you're going to find out next week. Yes. Um, I do I do my live streams over on Getter, which is a, a, a much better free speech platform than the uh, the normal stuff. Um, so you know we've uh, I've, I've been doing that for about nine months, where I interview lots of interesting people who are, are, are perhaps going against. Uh, the narrative and not having their voices heard so i've allowed them to have a voice to be heard and uh so my live streams every monday night eight o'clock on on getter and uh, i'll be interviewing you next week so i'm looking forward oh, to that likewise. turning the tables like i i'm looking forward to it as well uh maybe one or two other uh last questions on a personal level had you not been a professional footballer where do you think you would have ended up you know uh, a chef a, a a yachtsman what where where would matt be Okay, so um, I'm pretty certain uh, that at whatever I chose to do in my life, it would have revolved around sport. My mm. entire life growing up was um, sport mad. So I, I had a sport mad family. My three older brothers, all very good footballers. My dad was, was a good footballer, excuse me. Um, and, you know, my uncles were good footballers. Uh, and we just, everything revolved around sport. It wasn't just football. So I played I played a whole host of sports. We, I played softball. Uh, I played um, hockey. I played tennis, table tennis, to a decent standard. Um, and, and cricket was the other thing that I was really good at. Wow. Um, so, so if I had failed as a footballer, my next try as a job would have been as a cricket player. Wow. Okay. So, but how come you never went, or I don't, I don't think you did, go into football coaching? Was that not a natural? Uh, no, I didn't. I didn't uh, because uh, I had no passion for it. Yeah. Uh, and and I think to be a good coach, you've got to transfer your passion to the players. Yeah. And if you haven't got a passion for coaching, that's not that's not going to transfer very well to the players. Uh, and you and you will never get the best out of them. So I saw in managers that you know the what I saw were good managers was a was a real passion and a real want to be engrossed in this job 24 hours a day. And I didn't have that passion. I wanted to do other things with my life. When I when I retired from football, I wanted to play lots of golf. You know, I wanted to get my handicap down as low as I possibly could. Uh, and I wanted, I like having spare time. I, I like relaxing. I love relaxing. I sit and, you know, do Sudoku puzzles for, for hours on end. And um, uh, and just, you know, I take two hour baths and uh, <laughs> I just, I just love relaxing. So, um, so yeah, I never really wanted a, a proper full-time job. Wow. Uh, do you feel that the coaches, as we just mentioned, coaches, do you feel that players on average are less likely to take seriously a coach who himself had not been a top player, right? If Zidane walks into the room, mm. uh, the fact that he's Zidane, you know, I'm going to respect him because he's Zidane. I I'm speaking now as a player. On the other hand, if Mourinho comes in, yes, he's got larger than life personality and he's a good sort of manager of men and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, he was a gym teacher or whatever before. So on average, do you feel that it, it benefits if you were a top player before you become a coach? Okay, what what it what it does do? There's there's certainly no guarantees. What it does do, it gives you a little head start. Okay, yes. If you've been a top player, it gives you a head start because you walk into that change room. Every player recognizes you. Every player knows what you've done in your career, and it gives you a head start. Now, what you make of that head start is up to you. Yes. You know how your coaching how your coaching goes and how the players you know react to the sessions that you put on and are they enjoyable? They're keeping it fresh um that's down to you so you can give yourself a little bit of a head start by having a name um but in a football changing room that name will go very quickly if you can't coach and you don't make it enjoyable and the players can't see 
kind of plan that you're working to. Yeah, that that's that's a that's a beautiful point. But now, correct me if I'm wrong. I always say, and it would be, be worthwhile to do a statistical empirical test of this. I always argue that the importance of a coach is overestimated. I'm not saying that a coach is not important, but he's not nearly as important as we otherwise think he is, right? Uh, because oftentimes we attribute the successes of the team or the failures to the team on the coach, when in reality, it was other reasons. How much does a coach really matter? From my perspective, as someone who studies psychology, it's really in the management of each player where he matters. He is a psychologist without necessarily having the title of psychologist because yeah. he's not going to teach Matt how to kick a ball better or how to move better or teach Messi how to play better. Does that sound right? Uh, I, I think that's absolutely right. When you get to the level um, and working with the, the players that they're working with, when you get to that level... You're right. It's not about teaching them new skills. You know, it's it's not about that. It's being it's being able to understand what each individual player needs yeah. for him to get his best performance. Exactly. Um, and if you know, if you can if you can do that, it doesn't matter if you've won four World Cups or if you've played in the pub league. Uh, if you can, if you've got that skill in your locker to find out what makes a player tick and do the things that that gets him to perform at his best then you'll become a, a great manager. Exactly. Okay, last question. Earlier, you said you did not have any regret at having stayed in Southampton rather than going elsewhere. Okay, fair enough. But I'm going to ask a regret question in a broader sense, and I'm going to set it up. I, I almost always now, it's been it's become a tradition to end with the following question. Maybe because I have a chapter on regret in my forthcoming book about how to live a good life. And the person who has the fewest regrets at the end of their life is someone who's who's done well in life. And I'm going to set it up as follows, Matt. So one of my former uh, PhD uh, professors, when I, when I was pursuing my PhD, is a, a psychologist by the name of Tom Gilovich, who pioneered the, the, the study, the psychological study of regret. And he argued that there are two forms of regret. There is regret okay. due to action and regret due to inaction. Regret due to action... Uh, I regret that I cheated on my wife and then this ended my marriage. So I committed an action. I now regret that I did that. Regret yeah. due to inaction is I, I regret that I became a physician because I come from a line of physicians. I I, I should have gone on for, for my love, which was to play soccer. Okay. That's due yeah. to that's a regret due to inaction. And it turns out that over the long term, our most haunting regrets are those of inaction. Right. And and if, by the way, if I were going to speak about myself, by far my greatest regret is that I didn't get to see my soccer career to its fruition. I very much knew that I had a very clear talent, uh, which you were kind enough to point to. And when I was 17, you should have seen me then. I lived in Canada. I had a career-ending injury. I didn't come from a family environment that supported it. Who, who plays soccer? This is for idiots. You have a brain. You, you, we're not going to support that. So I, I, for all sorts of reasons, I didn't have that opportunity. And that's something that always haunts me. So now I'm going to turn it to you. If you were to list your one, two greatest regrets, if you feel comfortable sharing them, take it away. Um. I don't have I don't have many regrets because it, it, you know even if you make mistakes it kind of turns you into the person that you are, sure. um, and so uh, if you start regretting everything in your life I think you end up 
actually not liking yourself very much. Uh, and I don't think that's a, a place where I want to go to. You know, I, I like myself. Um, uh, and I, I kind of looking back, I probably I probably regret uh, the way that I chose to leave my wife, my first wife. Mm. Uh, I should have done that in a different manner. Um, that's That's the one regret that, that I probably had. That- I was in a very unhappy marriage. I should have left way before I did. Um, I see. Yeah, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it does. Okay. And is this, I'm wondering. Oh, is this... and my other regret, my yes. other regret is I had a header against Italy when I was playing for England in my last ever cap, which I should have scored. And it went just <laughs> past the post. And it haunts me, it haunts me to this day that if that if that header had gone just the other side of the post, I probably would have gone to the 1998 World Cup. And that is really annoying. <laughs> oh my God. Now, but that's really not a existential regret. It's no. in the moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You never scored a goal for England. I mean, you scored, I think, no. for England B, but not England A, right? That's right. Yes. Yeah. But you are an international player. Nobody can take that away from you. Matt, Absolutely. what a delight to talk to you. I'm so much looking forward to coming on your show uh, next week. Is there anything you'd like to use as we're closing out this opportunity to promote a project you're working on, a book you're writing, anything? It's your time. Um, yeah, no projects or books, but I uh, I implore all your uh, listeners to come and watch uh, you being interviewed uh, <laughs> on my live stream on Getter, 8 o'clock every Monday. Um, and, uh, and yes, I've got Jason Vale on in a, in a few hours' time, and I look forward to speaking to you next week. Oh, thank you so much, Matt. And if I do come to your area, am I getting tickets to go watch a game with you? You're definitely coming and watch a game with me. I am so excited. Thank you so much, Matt. Stay on the line so we can say goodbye offline. Such a pleasure and honor to meet you. Thank you. Likewise.